Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning. It's the last episode of season one, so we'll be taking a short break after this one. But I have to say I've really enjoyed recording the podcast so far. I'm very much looking forward to doing more. This episode will continue our tradition of delving into the MIMS Learning Bank of Education modules to bring you key learning points. And in this episode, we'll look at benign vulval conditions. We'll feature an interview with pain management expert, Dr. Mick Serpell on neuropathic pain, and we'll talk about a fascinating research nugget. We're not clinicians, but we're medical editors, and we're constantly in contact with the medical experts who write and present our learning materials. So the learning points in our podcasts come from them and are designed to inform your practice as a healthcare professional. So first of all, I'd like to talk about a learning module that was published on the site earlier this year. It's written by a sexual health consultant, Dr. Cindy Sethi, and it provides really good information about benign vulval conditions. I heard a GP say some years ago, that dermatology is difficult because there are hundreds of conditions and only two creams. I think hopefully things may have moved on a little bit, but I can see that where vulval conditions are concerned, it must be tricky to distinguish them from each other, to know what they look like and to understand when specialist help may be needed. So that's where this learning module comes in. Dr. Sethi has divided the module up into sections covering seven different conditions that affect the vulva. So we've got lichen sclerosis, lichen planus, lichen simplex, eczema, psoriasis, intraepithelial neoplasia, and vulval pain syndromes. The module has clinical images depicting the first six conditions so that clinicians can tell them apart. It also features a downloadable PDF summary table, giving an at-a-glance comparison of the key attributes of the conditions, For example, you can compare symptoms and signs across the conditions, along with investigations, management and follow-up. Each of the topics is dealt with in the main text, but the table enables you to compare easily. I have with me here Dawn Powell, one of our medical editors. Dawn, I think you had a few questions. Yes, I was just thinking, of these conditions, which one is the GP most likely to see in practice? Well, apparently vulval lichen sclerosis is underdiagnosed with an incidence of 1.6% in women by the age of 80, according to Dr. Sethi, and according to another module we have on lichen sclerosis specifically, the two peak ages of onset are before puberty and after menopause. And early diagnosis is important because you can get scarring, and this can cause alteration of the anatomical structure of the vulva. For example, resorption of the labia minora into the labia majora and tethering of the clitoral hood. Lichen simplex is also quite common and produces itch and soreness, often in patients who have a personal or family history of atopy. And lichen planus is apparently not uncommon, affecting 9% of patients attending a tertiary hospital clinic. And this is an inflammatory disorder like lichen sclerosis, but it can also affect the skin, hair and nails. Okay, I'm just going to go back to the first one you mentioned, which I think was vulva lichen sclerosis. I think you said that was underdiagnosed. Do you think embarrassment might be an issue here, preventing women from reporting these conditions so they're not being diagnosed? Well, the module doesn't talk about why underdiagnosis occurs, but 
I guess embarrassment could be a factor and the module can at least help clinicians to understand what it is the woman may have when she does present. Continuing on the um, theme of embarrassment, I mean, obviously not in the medical field, but in the general public, having an itch down there is typically associated with something that's been sexually transmitted. So are these conditions caused by a sexually transmitted infection? Well, regarding STIs, when you're talking about lichen sclerosis, lichen planus and lichen simplex, and also psoriasis and eczema, I think it's safe to say they're not sexually transmitted. However, the module does cover VIN, vulval intraepithelial neoplasia, which is, although technically benign, is considered to be a precancerous condition that's associated with HPV infection. And of course, HPV is the human papillomavirus infection and young people get vaccinations for that these days. So HPV infection is, of course, linked to sexual activity. The main complication of VIN is the development of squamous cell carcinoma and it's associated with CIN, which is cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. So the module recommends that an STI screen should be carried out when investigating VIN if clinically indicated. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah, that does make sense. Um, I think because you just mentioned the HPV vaccine, I'm just wondering, would that help protect against VIN as well as CIN? Well, it seems so because usual type VIN is associated with persistent carcinogenic HPV infection and factors that drive that, such as cigarette smoking and being immunocompromised. So current HPV vaccines offer protection against the usual type of VIN. And there's a study on this that we're going to link to in the podcast description. Okay, so the HPV vaccine does offer some protection against usual type VIN, but obviously the vaccine hasn't been around forever, so there are going to be people presenting with VIN who haven't had the vaccine. What symptoms should GPs be looking out for? Well, according to the module, VIN may be asymptomatic or symptoms may include lumps, erosions, burning, itch or irritation and pain. In most cases, there are visible lesions that are elevated, but sometimes they can be flat and they can be various colours. So if you suspect VIN, it's important to refer. Okay, so if a GP suspects VIN, they refer presumably to a specialist and they're not managing it themselves. But for other benign vulva conditions, they might be managing it themselves. I mean, I'm just going to go back to that comment you made at the start saying like hundreds of conditions, but only two creams. Is this still the situation? Well, reading the handy summary table in the module, it's obvious that that's true to a small extent. Where the lichenous conditions are concerned, along with vulval eczema and psoriasis, avoidance of irritants is the first thing, first step to take. Then the use of emollient soaps substitutes instead of soap. Then after that, the treatment options often do involve the same thing, which is often topical steroids, sometimes in combination with an antifungal or antibacterial agent. But then with lichen planus, there do seem to be some newer options, newer biological agents that may be used, although these require careful monitoring. And with psoriasis, there are other options more in line with general treatment of psoriasis, although these themselves may cause irritation. 
So where VIN and vulval pain are concerned, these are different. Talking to the patient about the condition is the first step in both cases. And then treatment of VIN may involve surgical excision or agents such as imiquimod or 5-fluorouracil cream, while treatment of vulval pain involves a whole different range of options. And we actually have a clinical review on vulval pain that goes into more detail about these. So I guess overall there is there's still a little bit of truth there in that the options for treating several of these conditions seem broadly similar. So do check out the module as it's got lots of useful information and pictures. And thanks very much, Dawn, for your questions. We go now to our interview between Dawn and pain expert, Dr. Mick Serpel, on the topic of neuropathic pain. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Michael Sapel. He is a consultant and senior lecturer at the University Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care and Pain Medicine at Queen Elizabeth's University Hospital in Glasgow. Today, he will be speaking to me about the management of neuropathic pain. Hi, Mick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there, Dawn. Thank you for inviting me. So let's, um, we're talking about neuropathic pain. What is neuropathic pain and how is it different from other types of pain? So neuropathic pain is basically a nerve pain as opposed to tissue damage pain. You know, an example of nerve pain would be something like post-hepatic neuralgia or diabetic neuropathy, as opposed to tissue damage pain, which might be an arthritic joint or a, a soft tissue muscle wound. And the actual definition, according to IASP, is that it's damage from a somatosensory part of the nervous system. So sensory nerves have to be involved in this nerve damage pain. Okay. And how common is it? I mean, is it something you see a lot? We do in the pain clinic uh, quite a bit. In general, it's quoted to be between 8 to 12% in the general population. And chronic pain itself in the general population is about 20 to 25%. So it's a good proportion of that. Okay, and what about the type of patients that have that? I think you were talking about diabetic neuropathic pain before. Is this going to be older patients who typically have neuropathic pain? Well, as you say, it depends really on the cause. So probably or diabetes is one of the most common causes of neuropathic pain from a global perspective. And yes, those patients tend to be tend to be older, maybe sort of mid-40s onwards. But in the pain clinics, we see a lot of post-traumatic or post-surgical pain and a lot of that has a neuropathic component so that will likely involve younger patients in their 20s and 30s for example and other conditions like post-traumatic neuralgia they're definitely much more common towards the older population usually above 50s 60s 70s okay so just to recap we sort of meant three causes there so it's like diabetes like post-surgery uh-huh. and uh, post-shingles. I mean, what about, is there any other causes or are those the three main ones? Those are, uh, you know, the main groups, but we see lots of other types. For example, chemotherapy-induced pain. So a lot of patients getting uh, treatments for a chemotherapy survive their tumor, but are left with a very difficult, severe neuropathic pain. Okay. So, yeah, so chemotherapy is another potential Another cause. big group, yeah. Okay. So you've got a patient, I mean, presumably they'd first of all go to a GP. Mm-hmm. They've got a patient and they're reporting that they have pain. 
I mean, how should a clinician approach diagnosis? I mean, how do they determine that this is, might be a neuropathic pain they're experiencing rather than another type of pain? Yeah, well, I think a clinician has to have a, a suspicion, you know, an index of suspicion. The words that patients use to describe neuropathic pain tend to form from a fairly narrow range of words which are very typical of nerve pain, such as burning or stinging, stabbing, sharp, tingling, cold even, sometimes itch. So those kind of nervy type words are used uh, by the patients when they describe what their pain feels like. And then obviously having an open mind as to what might be the diagnosis and if they have diabetes or have had recent surgery and the pain is within those appropriate areas, that would uh, give you further support that this could be a neuropathic pain. Okay, and I think you sort of mentioning basically another thing is always to look at the patient history as well because that can give you some indication as to the diagnosis. So Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then apart from symptoms, there may be signs. So if the pain is localised, picking up signs of excessive nerve activity, such as increased sensitivity, what we sometimes call allodynia or hyperalgesia, increased pain to a very mildly painful stimulus. These are kind of uh, subjective, semi-objective signs that would increase your strength of conviction that this is a diagnosis of neuropathic pain. Okay, and what about the um, goals of treatment? Because it's not like you can cure it, can you? Because it's not like there's an injury you're curing. Yeah, if it's been a, a clear-cut nerve injury, such as after a trauma, you know, a knife cutting through a nerve, the nerves can can recover. But nerves are one of the poorest tissues at recovering. So there may be some permanent damage left over. And you're right, there may be no complete remission of that pain symptom. But our aims are always to try and reduce the amount of pain. Uh, that is one of the main things that brings the patient to us. But in chronic pain, really, at the end of the day, more important than the level of pain that the patient experiences is the label, the level of impact of that pain in terms of what they can do physically and psychologically, their overall function. So our holistic treatment for the patients really, yes, it tries to reduce the pain down to a bearable level, but sometimes that's not achievable. But if we can improve their function, that is a, a much more prize-worthy goal. Okay, so it's kind of like saying so in terms of function, it's more, is it so kind of like quality of life? Absolutely, yes. And I think because you've done a module on the best sort of treatments for neuropathic pain for MIMS learning. In that module, what do you say are the recommended treatment options for neuropathic pain? Yeah, so that module mainly talks about drug treatment and drugs are one of the core therapies that we use to treat pain. But there's also lots of other non-drug treatments. And this is where the physiotherapy and the psychology comes into it. And this is what pain clinics can can deliver and train the patients and support them in order to achieve their optimal function. But in terms of drugs themselves, well, NICE have done very nice guidelines for neuropathic pain in the, for the non-specialist, and they have a, a nice clear pathway of what drugs should be used. Okay. Going back to what you're saying about diabetes and you know, post someone who's got neuropathic pain following cancer, those patients probably have comorbidities of diabetes as comorbidity. Do these options differ depending on the comorbidity? Yes. Uh -huh. If we're going to use a drug therapy, then a specific drug will have specific side effects. So, for example, out of the four drugs that the NICE guidelines recommend, which are 
to analgesic antidepressants such as amitriptyline and duloxetine, well, they can cause drowsiness. The amitriptyline is, can also cause problems with heart arrhythmias. So somebody with heart problems, arrhythmias would be one that we would probably not be able to use amitriptyline in. Similarly with the, the gabapentinoids, pregabalin and gabapentin, as well as general sedation that they can cause. They can also cause water retention and edema of the ankle. So somebody having problems with that would obviously be a relative contraindication to using those drugs. Okay. So again, it's, I suppose it's, again, treatment has to be individualized to the patient. Yeah, based on, you know, what their comorbidities are, but also on what their previous exposure and experience with drugs in that family are. Some people are just very sensitive or have propensity to side effects to certain particular families of drugs. So yes, you've got to individualize the treatment to the patient. So that's one challenge. But what about the other challenges with managing neuropathic pain? Do you need to consider the fact the patient might need to be on these treatments long term or need to be in long term therapy? Yes. As I say, when we assess the patient, we find out what their main problems and what their main objectives are with engaging with the pain service are. And some people, for example, say straight up they don't want to be on medications for whatever reason. And so we have to go down the long drug route. Other patients where you might be wanting to bring in some psychology, they've got maybe cognitive you know, problems. They're not very good at understanding things. And so you'd be quite limited in how far you could go with a psychology-based type therapy. You know, and again, physical therapy. Somebody has a pre-existing physical disability which prevents them from engaging in physio in the normal way, then we have to take that into account as to what form physiotherapy could be brought in to try and improve their quality and function. What about the risk of addiction with neuropathic pain medication? I mean, what if they've got an existing history of addiction? Is that something you've got to be considering? Yes, we're always mindful of that, you know, particularly with certain drugs like opioids, which although they're not recommended within the NICE guidelines for long-term therapy, sometimes in pain clinics we will come to use them. So we're always very wary with opioids and the risk of addiction, but also the gabapentinoids, particularly pregabalin, has an association with addiction. So we'd be very mindful of that. And, you know, by and large, patients with a genuine pain condition who don't have or have a, a normal low risk of addiction generally can use pregabalin with very little problem in the addiction aspect of things. So we try and filter out patients appropriately so that those patients who are at high risk aren't exposed to drugs which could make their addiction risk uh, more of a problem. Okay, thank you. And what about the old adage, prevention is better than cure? Is it what could be done to prevent neuropathic pain from developing in the first place? Well, that's sort of the holy grail, particularly when it comes to surgery, for example, you know, elective surgery where you know the patient's going to have an operation. And there is an incidence of chronic post-surgical pain, of which a big component is neuropathic pain that occurs after many types of surgery. So lots of studies have been done to see what measures can reduce that. There's no clear-cut way to absolutely negate that problem, but there seems to be advantage in minimizing the amount of tissue trauma. So the surgeon's using keyhole, minimally invasive surgery. The anesthetist using particular drugs, sometimes ketamine or the gabapentinoids for a short term around that surgical period to try and reduce the risk of chronic pain. But to say we haven't got the answer to that yet. So I think the main thing is 
trying to diagnose this pain as early as possible and bring the treatments that you know may work to that patient as quick as possible in order to reduce the chances of the pain becoming a chronic one. Because the longer the patient has the pain, the least likely it is to respond to whatever therapy you may want to bring to it. And the worse the patient gets, both in terms of physical and emotional, psychological function. Okay. Something you mentioned about psychological function. Is that something you have to be careful about talking to the patient about? Because or psych- recommending some CBT or some sort of therapy because they might have been believed. And how do you get that thorny issue, to be honest, that you're sort of trying to suggest that the pain is in their head and you're telling them to go to therapy? Because that might be their suspicion when you're suggesting some sort of therapy. Yes, that is a, a very common problem. And, you know, understandably, the patient is quite defensive when you mention these types of therapies, particularly because in the past, on their journey to the pain clinic, they may have been told that there's nothing wrong, that this is all in their head. And so they have a big problem getting patients to believe that they have a genuine pain condition. I think that's improved latterly with better education amongst all the healthcare professionals, but we still have that problem. So I think the best way to, to sort of engage the patient along that line of thinking is just to sort of be honest, and I do this right from the first consultation, put all the treatment cards on the table. I'll say there are some drugs that we can try, and there are some physiotherapy techniques we can try, and there's some psychology techniques. I try and introduce that further by saying, you probably realize yourself that if you're feeling low, if you've had a bad night's sleep, if the weather's bad, that you your pain will seem overall much worse. And once they start to sort of recognize that and see that these other external aspects of their pain can make their pain worse, we say, well, if we can get those negative things out of the way, that just leaves you to get on with the pain itself, which will be less of a a bad experience for you. So it's trying to sort of coax them into that line of thinking. Okay. So like you've been talking a lot about, you know, how important it is to individualize the treatment to the patient, how important it is to discuss with them any concerns they have and just have a proper involvement in discussion about management options. But from those discussions with patients, is there anything you thought has changed your view on how to manage neuropathic pain or you've learned from patients? Well, certainly when the patient, they'll have their own beliefs about what may be their, the cause of their condition is. So you try and rectify any things like that. But a lot of patients will tell you, you know, that they don't want certain treatments because they may have had some personal exposure to that in the past, but a lot of time it's it's hearsay. They've heard from a friend or a relative was on some type of therapy and they had this bad outcome. And so there's a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding. So it's important to listen to the patients to pick up on those things which may be completely uh, incorrect to try and give them a truer picture of what the options are. And it's only with the true facts that the patient can really make proper informed decision as to what choices they will they will agree to engage with in terms of what we provide for them okay well thank you so much for your time today mate i really think it's been a great discussion basically key points individualizing treatment to the patient and listening to them and talking with them to help them understand their condition understand what their options are so if you want to know more about the management of neuropathic pain we really recommend looking at mixed module best use of neuropathic pain management which is available on the MIMS learning website
So Dawn, Sangeeta and I are back for our discussion of a learning nugget drawn from our regular monthly research briefings in a variety of specialties. So Sangeeta, what have you got for us? So for this episode, something in April's gastroenterology research briefing got my attention. This study talks about psychological therapies in inflammatory bowel disease and their use in pain and fatigue. So the study was picked up by a gastroenterology clinical advisor, Dr. Juliet Lowry, because she thought it was refreshing to see a research paper investigating a non-medical intervention for Crohn's disease symptoms and because it was published in a well-known gastroenterology journal. In episode 7, Dawn, you covered managing pain through cognitive behavioral therapy. So in this study, the researchers looked at the effect of cognitive behavioral and mindfulness intervention. In the study, they called it COBMINDEX for patients who had mild to moderate Crohn's. The study split the participants into two groups, one that received the COBMINDEX and the other that received treatment as usual for three months. They found that abdominal pain and fatigue were significantly reduced in the people with Crohn's who received the COBMINDEX intervention compared to the control group and work productivity improved in the patients who received the psychological intervention. So that's interesting. Do you think it's likely that disease activity affected the results? Is it plausible that more people in the mindfulness group had latent disease while the others were having disease flares? The authors already did think of that. And to rule out the differences in disease activity between the groups that might skew results, they used a modified Harvey Bradshaw index, which is used to measure disease activity in Crohn's. Yeah, offering acceptance and commitment therapy which is known as ACT, or CBT to manage pain, is also mentioned in the NICE guidance in chronic pain as one of the treatment modalities. And we have a summary of this NICE guidance in our Espresso module entitled Chronic Pain Guidance, a Specialist View, coincidentally also written by Dr. Sapel, who we just interviewed. Although this guidance does talk about chronic primary pain. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. And these guidelines stress on non-pharmacological management of chronic pain, which is really good. In our module, Extraintestinal Manifestations of IBD, that's on men's learning, I found that the pain and fatigue can actually start months before the gut symptoms show up and before Crohn's is diagnosed, which is quite surprising to me. Fatigue is the largest cause of missing work in the IBD population. And like I said before, it can appear before you even know you have IBD. And I suspect anyone with fatigue may benefit from this COBMINDEX intervention. Although I must say there were some unanswered questions in the study. Our clinical advisor, Dr. Juliet Lowry, questioned exactly what medical therapies the control group received, as this was not mentioned in the paper, and also why patients with active disease were included in the study at all. In Juliet's opinion, it was important to achieve clinical and mucosal remission first before assessing response to psychological therapies. So that way it would have been clearer if the intervention is useful for patients with ongoing fatigue and pain. I think it may be interesting to do a larger study, including those in remission and separating them out from those with active disease. Yeah, I think the study sounds really interesting. And also I think psychological therapies are probably beneficial for people with chronic conditions such as Crohn's and they're unlikely to cause harm. However, I think accessing these therapies on the NHS will be a real issue. So it's all very well recommending psychological therapies for people with conditions like Crohn's, but how quickly are they going to be able to access them? Perhaps 
they could be directed towards self-help resources. Yeah, that's a really good point, Dawn. And I think people with Crohn's are able to use the self-referral process on the NHS. But if for whatever reason, if people aren't able to access this, the NHS lists several online self-help therapies, including access to books and online self-help CBT techniques that people can avail of and adopt practical strategies based on the CBT techniques. In summary, though this was a relatively small study, it shows that psychological interventions can help manage symptoms of Crohn's, especially fatigue. So perhaps GPs and other clinicians can bear this in mind when prescribing for this condition. Thanks very much, Dawn and Sangeeta, for this interesting discussion. You can find links to the research that we've talked about in the podcast description. And we'll see you later in the summer when we start season two. Thanks for listening. <laughs>